Well, hello everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 146. So glad you could join me on this fine Sunday morning. Um, Nancy Miller is our main guest. She'll be here in about 15 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Um, leave a review on like iTunes or Audible or Spotify or wherever you leave reviews. All that stuff helps, uh, helps us be suggested in the computer algorithms, and then help, that helps poetry spread around the internet, which is what we're always trying to do here. So if you would, please um, click that stuff right now. Um, now, today was a tough week for news. Um, you know, and it, and it made for a really rough, uh, to be honest, um, reading yesterday of um, Poets Respond poems. There were over 500 submissions. They were almost all on the same topic, which was just the, the tragic school shooting in Texas. And, um, and it was hard to even, you know, know what to pick. There were so many great poems about it. Um, but so I sort of defaulted to um, how it usually works uh, on date times like these where the poem that made me cry was the poem that I picked for today after reading about 400 of them. And I think I had a cold heart, you know, and, and had been, you know, I don't know that this one got to me. And um, we have the poet here, Rachel Malalu. Hey, Rachel, how you doing? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad you could join us. Um, and I don't know if this poem needs any introduction. Everybody knows what it's about, probably. But do you want to just explain how the poem came to be and, and why you wrote it? Um, well, I mean, like everybody, I, I could hardly even think after the school shootings. And as a writer, of course, you start thinking in terms of, well, you know, what can I say? What would I say? What works? And I had nothing. I had nothing until I walked in the wood. Actually, on Thursday night, I finally did talk. I have five kids, but I have one fourth grader. So that's mm -hmm. the one that I concentrated on. And I did actually have that exact conversation with him in which I was telling him what to do if there was a shooter. And finally, I, I told him, if, if all else fails, you've got to paint yourself with someone else's blood. you got to play dead. And the look, he just looked at me, his big blue eyes, these eyes and this look of horror. And I, you know, as parents, all we want to do is protect our children. And I felt horrible. But I felt like I had to tell him that. And then the next day I walk in the woods every day. It's kind of how I survived this life. And um, those words just started to come to me in the solace of the woods. But just, yeah, there's also no guarantees. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to feel so hopeless and helpless. But then to have the hope to keep on raising five kids in this world. Yeah, yeah, for me. I and mean, we have um, a second grader and a sixth grader. And, um, and, and two days before the shooting, there was an event in our school, at our elementary school, right here in town, where somebody just, it was probably just a Pacific Crest Trail backpacker with like a big pole, <laughs> but, but somebody called it in as a gun. And so the police rushed in and, and some guy who happened to drive by in a camo jacket was like pulled over and the cops swarmed <laughs> and, and, you know, and so the word spreads around the town and, um, and, I don't know, at the time, I was just like, oh, I'm sure it's, you know, it's just nothing. It's just a backpacker that somebody mistook for somebody, but they were searching the neighborhoods. And then two days later, you know, this happens. And, and I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's just so hard to imagine. And of course, um, you know, tragedies happen every day, everywhere in the world. And, but, but there's something about, about these events that are just so heartbreaking. Um, and so, and you captured it in this poem. I mean, how to talk to kids about it is, a, is difficult to know, know what to do. Mm-hmm. Well, do you want to go ahead and read it? This is, I tell my son to cover himself in someone else's blood. Sure. Last night, I told my son that if he sees a shooter coming, he needs to hide in a file cabinet or underneath a covered table. If he's in the bathroom, he should stand on a toilet and lock the stall door. If there's nowhere to go, 
I asked him to paint himself with someone else's blood and play dead. Give him a break, my husband murmured. Let him relax a bit. Simon needed extra prayers at bedtime. Say my name out loud. Tell God to keep me safe, or at least don't let him come while I'm in art class. During shooter drills, my teacher forgot to lock the door and the windows too big to cover with paper. I smoothed the circles under his eyes while I begged God to keep him here with me. Today, the forest is a cathedral and cedar trees waft incense. The blossoms are a riotous crowd, tulip poplars, mountain laurel, dogwoods, and wisteria. The About Me poster outside Simon's fourth grade classroom says he loves our dog Theo and tacos. His favorite color is green. He wants to be a doctor. The trees hush the sirens and only the flowers hear the whispered coda to my prayer. If he comes, God, and Simon can't hide, please, please God, let me be there too. The blooms, mute gods, bend their faces toward my cries and promise nothing. Yeah, just such a heartbreaking poem. And um, that we have to have those conversations, you know, and, and it's been going on for 30 years almost. Um, um, so uh, you're, a, you're a doctor as well. And before I let you go, I was wondering how, you know, you've had some poems about COVID um, that we've published in Poets Respond. Um, how, is, how is your area doing for that? Because I know in our area, it's very strange. I know more people who have COVID right now than in any time. We had a festival last weekend. And I think 27 people signed up for the workshops and three had to cancel for because they tested positive like the day before. Um, but but it seems like the hospitals are doing all right right now. Is that is that your experience, too? Yeah, I'm actually here in my house instead of at my cabin where I should be because one of my kids has. COVID. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's real fun to try to isolate one child when there's five of them and you have a big family, you know, we're all, mm-hmm. they all roll as a pack. Um, yeah, same thing. Tons of COVID, huge community spread. But thankfully, I mean, there's there's definitely a bump in hospitalizations. I think a month ago we had three. In my, I don't have a huge populous county. It's big, um, but there's only two hospitals, and now there's over 30. Mm-hmm. But these are at a time when hospital beds are already at a like all-time low. It's just been horrible with staffing and all that. So 30 extra bodies with COVID is is not good. Mm-hmm. So it's not nothing. Like at Christmas, I actually thought I was going to give up at Christmas. That's why I go in the woods every day. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I have to. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for that that little report and just for sharing this beautiful poem. Which I mean, you know, if, I don't know if you've seen on social media, but but ever so many people have shared it and and it's really touched a lot of people. A very very moving poem. Thanks for sharing it and for being a guest today. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was Rachel Malalu with uh, I Tell My Son to Cover Himself in Someone Else's Blood, today's poem on uh, Poets Respond. And we have Tuesday's poet as well. Um, Aaron Puchigian's here. Aaron was a guest a couple, one of the early shows. Hey, Aaron, how are you doing? Very well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you again. I mean, as, as always, we usually have to say on these Poets Respond under I Wish It Were Different Circumstances, where we had some heartbreaking poems to share. Um, but it's great to see you again. I think you were on like one of the early, like maybe episode 12 or yes. something way back in the day when I, um, didn't I even knew less what I was doing than, than now, <laughs> but uh, it's good to see you again. And of course you wrote a, a poem about the same topic. And, and when, whenever we get these weeks where we have so many poems about the same topic, I always try to find, you know, two poems that sort of hit it from different ways, different angles, and, and, and have a lot of contrast between the two, even though they're on the same subject. And that's what your poem did, is you went to uh, Strawberry Fields. Do you want to explain a little bit? Nobody's read this poem yet. It's Tuesday's featured poem. Um, 
Yes, I'm working on an epic poem uh, about Central Park in Manhattan. And I've given a number of poetry readings in Strawberry Fields, which is a memorial garden set up in honor of John Lennon, um, who was um, assassinated across the street in 1980. Um, and so you go there and... Um, I'm aware I was there actually earlier this week after the shooting or yeah, last week after the shooting and in Texas. And I was thinking about the memorialization of assassinations of killings. Um, and there's a lot of frustration among my friends in the feel is yeah, the feeling is that America is not doing enough um, among a lot of people to prevent um, these shootings. And so I was thinking about, yeah, how, beautiful it is, but also in a sense how vain it, I mean, it's, it comes to no purpose, right? In the end, it doesn't prevent anything. Um, it's just a place for reflection. Um, and so, yes, we'll see this poem as a kind of call to action. Um, yeah, well, why don't you go ahead and read it? Strawberry Fields. Strawberry Fields. After you leave the banks where moist sod yields beneath your feet, you labor up a steep hill and reach a garden called Strawberry Fields. Our poem hoped never to reach this scene, but here we are and we will see this through. Look at the flowers, every bloom, bud, sepal, Look at the trees, dogwoods, and river birches from all around the world. Here's what they mean. America is good at shooting people. Yes, we are violent. We are sick. It's true. Not just the wars. I mean the annual quota of massacres at schools, shows, stores, and churches. Here's an example of what our worst can do. In 1980, on December 8th, a person of perverse religious faith followed John Lennon back to the Dakota and pumped him full of hollow points because the former Beatle had proclaimed his band more popular than Jesus, and it was. So now, Across the street, we have a stand of elm trees. We have flame azaleas and geriatric strummers sit and prune songs like Imagine in the afternoon. To shrive a crime the world will never pardon. America gives prayers and a peace garden. Yeah, great ending there. And that line, uh, America is good at shooting people, is one of those simple, direct, great lines of poetry that just, I mean, you can't put it any more clearly than that. And the, the thing that was interesting about this poem, too, is that I'd always thought, you know, the, the, the shootings, this, this thing follows a, um, it's a psychological contagion model. So, like, I mean, the Buffalo shooting, you know, inspired the um, the Texas shooting, you know, in a way that, you know, that I think the odds are, are 35 percent or something higher within a week of another mass shooting if there was one before. Um, and I always think of Columbine as ground zero. But so reading this poem, it occurred to me that all the assassinations of the 60s, 70s and, and early 80s are sort of the the impetus for it. And then um, 
you know, the, with the Beatles, with um, the person who shot John Lennon, it's a tradition not to name the person, um, which I think is a very um, important lesson that we should probably apply everywhere else, too. So there are a couple interesting angles on this poem, as well as just being a great, great piece of formal writing. Very interested in hearing your uh, Central Park book as a whole. Um, do you have any idea when that's going to be finished or do you have any? We'll have you on the show whenever that is. Oh, thank you. Yes, I'm hoping to finish it this summer and then I'll shop it around for a publisher. Yeah. Um, and so hopefully, yeah, next year. Um, it'll be coming out at the end of next year. Thank you. Very cool. I'm looking forward to reading it whenever that happens. Um, and thanks for joining us today. All right, so we're going to take a quick break and uh, go to today's main guest, Nancy Miller Gomez. So hang tight and I will be right And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, today's guest is Nancy Miller Gomez. Nancy's chapbook, Punishment, was published as part of Rattle's chapbook series. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Best American Poetry, um, Best New Poets, The New Ohio Review, American Life and Poetry, Verse Daily, all over the place. I'm a failed waitress. She has worked as a stable hand, an attorney, and a television producer. She co-founded an organization that provides writing workshops to incarcerated women and men and has taught poetry in Salinas Valley State Prison and the Santa Cruz County Jails. She grew up in Kansas but currently lives in Santa Cruz, California. And uh, for full disclosure, Nancy is, um, as of last year, a member of Rattle's very small board of directors. So um, it's very cool to have you on, Nancy. We've, uh, you know, people will see why you're a great addition to our board, even though it's a tiny board. Um, it's really wonderful to have you here. And um, yeah, welcome to uh, the show. Thanks, Tim. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm not an early morning person, but for you, I, you know, I got up and I rallied. So um. Um, do you want to start out with a poem? And, and uh, as I do that, let me, um, there we go. That should work. There we go. Nancy Miller Gomez back on the screen. Okay. Uh, yeah. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being a guest. Uh, you know, we've been such a fan of your work um, for so long. I mean, you're just incredible. Um, Punishment, the chapbook we have right here, um, is the only book that's not part of the um, Rattle um, chapbook prize. Because what happened, I always wanted to explain to everybody, this was the transition when we decided to... Um, go to a chapbook every single issue. Before that, the prize was only one issue. You got a chapbook with it. And then we thought, this is so great. We want to do it every time. So we had an opening where we didn't have time for a contest. And you happened to send some poems from this chapbook and mentioned that it was part of a chapbook. And so I said, hey, let's see the chapbook. And then uh, we ran with it because this would have been the prize winner um, that year. It's such a wonderful thing. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about, about how the chapbook came to be and, and what your work is in prisons? Because that's the, the focus of um, both the current issue of Rattle that's about to come out and, um, and this chapbook um yeah well i uh i think you know i study with ellen bass she's been one of my poetry mentors and um when i was transitioning sort of from my previous business life into getting pretty serious about writing poetry and kind of knuckling down and working really hard and studying um with ellen she mentioned to me that she was going to be teaching a workshop at Salinas Valley State Prison, or she had started up a workshop there and she didn't, um, wasn't going to be able to continue it. And she was looking for someone who could step in and start teaching at the prison. And I was really intrigued by it, but I thought, oh, I'm also extremely intimidated by it. First of all, I just don't have confidence in myself as a poet to be able to go and teach other people write poetry. And I was nervous about, you know, being present in, in, 
in the carceral system, which was something I hadn't experienced firsthand. And um, she assured me that I would be able to do it and encouraged me. So my very first um, uh, you know, visit to the prison, um, I went with another uh, a friend who was also teaching at the prison. And um, I was just instantly struck by the magic that happens in the classroom at, you know, whenever you're working with with people um, in a carceral situation, when you give them poetry, it, they it's such a gift and they are so grateful and so responsive because in that setting, there is so little stimulation, especially intellectual stimulation. And these men and women are just hungry for discourse for intellectual discourse. And they are so grateful that you have shown up for them because these are people that throughout their lives really haven't had people show up for them. And just the fact that you're there, they, they are just so um, present and grateful and they are, they step into this room and they're willing to put aside, you know, all of their gang affiliations and all of their, um, you know, these are people who might not even talk to each other out on the yard. And yet in this room, magic happens. They put aside all of that. They are willing to be vulnerable. They're willing to be open. They're willing to be honest. And they, you know, I see it as um, just this wonderful gift that we're able to engage in the process of helping them learn how to express themselves in ways that deeply connect them to other people. And, um, you know, I, I kind of think in my, you know, uh, Pollyanna way of thinking about the world that if we could just teach everyone to write poetry when they're younger, they might not end up in prison. And, you know, who knows, maybe we'd have fewer school shootings, but, um, so I started doing that and, um, you know, there's just so much, uh, material that, you know, I, I encounter things, um, that, you know, you think the first time I taught, I remember coming out to my car and just like, I had, I couldn't drive. I was so moved. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, I want to be really respectful of the material. I don't want to, um, co-opt their stories. Um, so I, typically try to write things that are filtered through my own perspective and lens. Um, but a number of poems started to come out about that experience. And um, that was how the, the, the chat book came together. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, we'll talk more about this, but let's hear uh, another poem or a, a poem from the book. What do you want to, what do you want to read first? So I think I'll start with growing apples in the County jail. Okay. Um, there is big excitement in C block today. On the windowsill, in a plastic ice cream cup, a little plant is growing. This is all the men want to talk about. How an apple seed germinated in a crack of damp concrete. How they tore open tea bags to collect the leaves, leached them in water, then laid the sprout onto the bed made of Lipton, how this finger of spring dug one delicate root down into the dark fannings, and now two small sleeves of green are pushing out from the emerging tip. The men are tipsy with this miracle. Each morning, one by one, 
they go to the window and check the progress of the struggling plant. All through the day, they return to stand over the seedling and whisper. And that is Growing Apples from uh, the Punishment chapbook, um, which is available, of course, on rattle.com. Um, so, so you haven't had a chance to read um, the Gary Fine interview with Prisoner Express that I did for the summer issue. There was a delay, just so everybody knows who's a subscriber. Um, our printer was hacked, and so they, had, um, they were offline for like three weeks. And so there's a backlog. I actually have a copy. I don't know where I put it. But um, I, don't, I think for the first time ever, I'm the first one to have a copy. But, um, but Prisoner Express is a program that does something similar to, um, is it the Santa Cruz Poetry Project? Is that what the organization's called that you do? Yeah, it's, well, it's, po- it's, it's got a couple of names. It's the Poetry in the Jails program of the Santa Cruz Poetry Project, ah, gotcha. um, which was the organization that I co-founded with Ellen Bass to, um, when she was the Poet Laureate of Santa Cruz County, that was her, her gift to the county was to bring poetry to incarcerated men and women. And um, uh, so she, you know, co-opted me to do the legwork in getting the organization started. And um, we've been, I guess we're going into like our seventh year now. And we, you know, we've run as many as five workshops a week um, in all of the county jails. And, um, you know, obviously the pandemic has had an effect on that, but we've just gone back to teaching in person again. That's great. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I was just there last week and it's great because it's been really hard. The pandemic has been hard on everybody, but it's been especially hard on people who are incarcerated because, you know, this is, you know, programming for them. Poetry workshop is, is something they really look forward to because they don't have as many opportunities to go walk in the woods. Yeah. And I mentioned, uh, I imagine the pandemic was really tough. I mean, they, they, you know, being locked down, you know, from what little social interaction you have, um, you know, and being in a prison where, I mean, I don't know how fast COVID would spread through a prison, but I can imagine it, it must've been tough in that way. And, and a lot of strict protocols. Um, how have our, our, um, how, how are people doing? Like, like are the, are the same people that you um, worked with before some of the time before COVID? Um, are they in, new people every time in, the, uh, in your your program? Well, in the in the jail in the county jails, um, you it's you know at the, when you're work, when you're teaching at the prison, you tend to get the same people because they're in for longer. Um, in the county jails, you often get people cycling through. Mm-hmm. And especially because, um, you know, one of the programs that we teach in is what they call the um, uh, rehabilitation and reentry program, which is um, and I give Santa Cruz County a lot of credit for this. They they have created a program that really sort of bathes um, the men and women who are going to be reentering the community with with programming and services to help them thrive once they reenter the community. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the programs that they offer is um, our poetry workshop. And you know, I have firsthand see how, I've seen how it makes a huge difference in you know in their ability to um, thrive once they get released um, because they now have this new thing that they can do. And for a period of time before the um, pandemic shut it down, we were doing um, we were doing workshops at the public library, which was a really beautiful thing because it was geared for the post-incarceral 
um, participants. So once they got released, a lot of the um, participants in the program kept saying, where, where can we get poetry when we get out? And so we started up this program at the library where they could come once they were released and a number of them were participating, but also members of the community were participating. So it's this really nice sort of blended group of people writing poetry, um, you know, members, um, justice involved members coming back into the community, working with community members and all very supportive of each other. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, at its best, I think poetry can do is it really brings people together. And how, you know. how much do you think of your program as as aimed at psychological healing? I know um, um, Ellen Bass has a book on healing through expressive writing. I can't remember what the name is. The Courage to Heal. Is that right? The Courage to Heal. Yes. And then um, and, and so in this interview, um, so Gary Fine at the um, at the Pr um, Prisoner Express does the same kind of thing, except through the mail. So he, he has a project through a library at Cornell where he will send um, people in prison uh, books that they request. And mm -hmm. then he includes a newsletter. Um, and the newsletter is full of, um, of prisoner writing and prompts for ne the next newsletter. And they can write poetry and they can make art and they can uh, write essays and fiction and share it with each other in this, in this sort of very simple newsletter format. Um, mm -hmm. But what it does is gives people a chance, and he ex explains this really powerfully in the interview. It, it, you know, it, when you're in prison, everything is so guarded. Like you can't be yourself or open up about anything. There's nobody you can tell. You have a, you have a cellmate sometimes and they're gone forever and, and you're not even allowed to contact them again. And, and, and even, if, even if you could connect that way, you're too afraid to, to have anything sort of out. But then when people can express themselves in, in prison through these programs, they can, they can sort of get that psychological healing that goes on um, that um, James Pennickbaker described too so well in our, um, in our interview in the winter issue about how if you, it's really keeping trauma internalized that, that causes health problems and, and psychological problems later. And you can't heal psychologically unless you release and share your stories. And so you've got these people locked up in a place they can't heal um, psychologically, a lot of times their criminality is caused by past trauma. And so it's this, this terrible cycle that we're doing very little to help. Mm -hmm. um, and so can you just talk about that, about how much is geared toward personal healing? And, and do you see the, the results in that? Like, are the recidivism, recidivism rates lower? Um, um, kind of absolutely. And that's part of the reason why, you know, the county jail is so supportive of, uh, you know, the programming. Um they uh, they have really bent over backwards to facilitate our workshops um, throughout the county jails because it does have a significant impact. In fact, that poem that I read, Growing Apples, um, typically when we're teaching in the jails, um, and I want to give a, a shout out to Renee and Deb, who are co-volunteers who have sort of stepped in and taken over the directorial responsibilities of keeping this program going, because I have stepped back from actively being the director of it now, and I um, I just support them in every way that I can and occasionally teach, but they're showing up every week and doing all the heavy lifting. But typically, we are escorted into a classroom, and then the men or the women are escorted to the classroom, and we teach you know, the workshop. And then we push a little red button and the guard comes back and the men are escorted back to their cell block and we are escorted out of the jail. But um, 
the county jail had started up this interesting program. I think it was called the level four program that they identified a group of men who were getting ready to be released back into the community within several months. And they offered them the opportunity to participate in what they were calling the level four program. And they all were housed in one particular cell block together if they opted into this program. And then they were bathed in services. Um, it was anger management and you know financial management and parenting. And the jail came to me and said, we really wanna include poetry as part of that curriculum of programming that we're giving these men who are getting ready to be released back into the community. And um, so the men who had opted into that program didn't necessarily sign up for poetry, but poetry, they have to participate in all of the programming if they opt into the program. So I showed up um, and very unusually, instead of being met at a classroom, I was escorted into their cell block. Mm. I was actually teaching in their living space, which is um, very unusual. Um, you know, there's a there was a like a common area where there was a big table where we could all sit around and there was a correction officer who escorted me in and stayed with me. Um, but I was actually in their living space and they didn't sign up for poetry. Usually when we teach a poetry workshop, the guys are volunteering into a poetry workshop. But in this case, it was a, a group of 20 men who had not signed up for poetry, but had signed up for the level four. So I show up and I've got to sell them on poetry because that, you know, they 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 don't know what that's about. And um, it was really incredible how fast they came around to recognizing that poetry was this amazing thing that would help them access all of that pain and hurt and anguish and the trauma, as you described it, that they've carried around inside them, you know, um, and they've never been able to write about it or talk about it or share it with other people. And, you know, poetry, as it was presented to them, is an opportunity for them to write those stories in an environment where it's safe to be vulnerable. And that was kind of the amazing thing that I saw around that table. I mean, these guys are, you know, they're, there's some bad dudes in there, not bad in the way that they're bad humans. They're just, they, they look a little scary. They're tatted up. They're, you know, former gang members. They've been involved in, you know, a variety of, um, activities that are, you know, have landed them in that situation. And yet every week there was um, somebody who would write something and it would bring everybody to tears and they would openly share that. They would hug each other. They would high five each other. Um, they would open up about their their past and their stories in a way they had never done that before. And um, so Towards the end of the of the session, you know, I think we met for I think it was three months, maybe four months towards the end of the as the program was wrapping up and the men were getting to graduate from this program and be released back into the community. One of the men said to me, how do I how do I get poetry lessons for my children? How do I how do I get them into poetry lessons? because I want them to be able to do this. And it was it was so touching and we all knew what he was talking about. It's this really incredibly magical thing was happening where people were able to deeply 
connect with each other in a way these men had never been given permission to do that before and to do it in a way where they were respected and um, have people be able to understand where they were coming from. They didn't feel so isolated. They felt heard, they felt seen, and they wanted to go back into their communities and have that uh, ability to, to share that with their children and their wives and their families. And so I really do think it, it helps with recidivism mm -hmm. because if you have that ability to, you know, to tell your stories in a way that is mean, that, you know, that it's meaningful and, and it's, it has incredible curative value as, you know, well, those of us who are poets, I often wonder when we encounter things like what happened this week or, you know, what's going on in the world. I often wonder how people who aren't poets make it through their days. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. where do they put that stuff? You know, we're lucky. We have this thing we get to do that is an, enables us to sort of sit quietly with those, with that, with those feelings that would otherwise we'd have no place to put them. And yet we can access them and put them on the page and then we can share them with other people and connect with each other in, in a way that is meaningful and that matters. And, you know, so when we can teach people in carceral settings, how to do that, um, I really do think it's a gift. And it was really interesting because working in the cell block, the correction officer had to stay with me and he started writing poetry and it was great because, you know, mm -hmm. he's sharing his poems and the guys are sharing their, you know, it, it was just this really interesting exchange where everybody was vulnerable together. You know, the correction officer, along with the um, the men who were incarcerated. And it was uh, it was pretty magical. But so growing apples back to that. Normally, I wouldn't be in their living space. But in this case, I was every week. And um you know, that it's if something bad happens, you can really feel it. Like if somebody goes to court and has a bad day, you know, you can just feel the sadness when you show up to teach. You can feel it. It's a heaviness. Um, but on that particular day, I, you know, I came into the cell block and I could just feel the joy. Like the men were just giddy. They were they were so excited and they wanted to show me this little it was like a little plastic cup and it had what looked like maybe some compost in it that they had made out of tea leaves because that's all they had access to. <laughs> and this little like little baby sprout was growing in it. And you would have I mean, it was truly it was like a miracle. It happened. And there was so much joy in that room over that. And I thought, wow, that's really a you know, that's the that's the poetry God shining on me right there. I have to do something with that. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and you've articulated it so well, but I've always thought, and the reason why I think it's worthwhile to do this, to have Rattle, is because, uh, you know, the amount of poetry in a society I've always felt is a kind of like a, a sign of how much psychological health we have. I think it's just such an important thing that we access the world and and in our emotions and, and articulate things. And so I think everybody should be a poet. And, and so it's programs like these that are just so valuable. Um, but I want to uh, make sure we get enough poems in. So let's okay. do, why don't we do two poems from Punishment back to back? Can we do that? Is that possible? Sure. Um, let's see. And then we have some questions from the audience, which I'll get to. Um, okay. Well, the next poem I'll do is Discovering Colors in Prison. Um, and little little background, this this actually came about out of an exercise. Um, Dorian Lux wrote, who's one of my mentors also, wrote a poem called Ode to Gray. 
um, which is this, you know, great poem that just really uses the color gray in a, in a phenomenal way. And um, uh, Ellen had taken that poem in at one point and used it and she had taken in color you know, those things you can get at the paint store that have all the different colors in yeah, um, and whatever, they yeah. have really crazy names like luscious red lips and streaming yellow sunshine. And anyway, so um, I had created a, a lesson around um, that uh, poem and I brought in the, the paint chips, but I also brought in an article. I think it was from Psychology Today, which was about how uh, cultures in certain places that don't have words for certain colors can't really see those colors as well. So there's some tribe, I don't know where it is, but they don't have a word for, I think it's blue. So they tend to see all of the blues as variations of green. Hmm. And it actually just not having the language affects how they see the colors. And I thought that was such an interesting article to bring in and discuss with everyone because you know, that's kind of what poetry does. You know, we're looking for words to describe things that are undescribable. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that? How do you describe something? How do you put, how do you articulate it? How do you put words to this experience or this feeling that there are no words for? And um, so kind of in the same way that these tribe, this that particular tribe didn't have words for color and couldn't really see the color, you know, we were talking about how, as poets, we're trying to find words for things that we might not otherwise be able to feel or access or describe. And that's that's our challenge as poets. And so we were in this great discussion. And one of the one of the men in the workshop said, do they ever discover new colors? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I suppose they are discovered. I mean, you know, they're probably discovering new colors all the time. And then, you know, we kind of did this thing about talking about what colors one would discover in prison. And, um, and this poem came out of that. Discovering colors in prison. Do they ever discover new colors? He asks. What would we name them? Bruised morning sky through a slit, too small to be called a window. The afterglow of boiled sun hazed over by ash. The crust of yard that grows only dust and dead weeds. Used surgical gloves scattered like so many discarded hands. The iridescent scream of a sharp-shinned hawk circling somewhere in the pastel wash of afternoon air. The cool feel of fresh light. The tensile sheen that buzzes off an electrified fence the tinge of barbs in barbed wire, the shadow of dried blood inside the lines of chalk, taser jolts, the burnt colors of fear, more smell than color, vaporous and acrid. All those things that want to become colors and can't. A voice of someone who doesn't visit, photos of loved ones so worn the faces are barely there. The colors we keep caged, a stubborn brightness refracted off betrayal and hate. Or heartache, the darkening hurt that feels like all the colors crushed into the one you see shimmering whenever you close your eyes. And that was Discovering Colors in Prison from the chapbook, uh, Punishment.
Um, let's see. So maybe we should. Um, so I have two questions from the audience. First off, um, let me find it again. Um, Deborah T. asked if you could recommend any resources for those who would like to start a poetry in the jails uh, workshop in their own area. Is there any advice you have for that? Um, I have lots of advice, probably more than I could cover it at this time. Um, uh, Deborah is welcome to reach out to me and I will, um, I'd be happy to have a conversation with her. So um, my, if you, Deb, you can contact okay. me on my website through my website and I will respond. I will get back to you. Was it just a case for you of like diving in and, and calling and asking until you got a response? Is that how it worked? Like you yeah. read about the wheel? Yeah, well, Ellen had asked me if I could, you know, get it started. And um, I just contacted the jail. And, you know, there's usually a programming person at the jail. And um, obviously, I had uh, uh, the chops of having Ellen Bass behind the name behind it. And people know her in Santa Cruz as a as a well-known poet. So um uh, it took a little while, you know, but we we got it going and it took a while to build trust mm -hmm. at, in the in the jail programming department. And um, but they are so supportive of our program. They bend over backwards to help us make it happen. And I am really grateful to them. You know, I really appreciate it. Um, and this other question, you'll see where the where the perfect transition is to the next poem. Um, but uh, can you talk? This is Dick Westheimer. He asked if you can talk more about appropriation. Um, did you share ask permission of the incarcerants before publishing? And and so these you know these are stories that happen in the prison. Um, right. Did you did you think about that? Did you worry about that? Did you ask them first? Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, we talk about it. And and I actually think I shared those poems with them. Mm -hmm. You know, like I wrote them, and then I took them back into the into the um, setting and I shared those poems with them and they were really excited, like super excited. Um, they loved that I had written about them. Yeah. So. Yeah. It seems like that would be the, the case. I mean, that's always been my experience. As long as you're not writing some kind of, you know, if your heart's in the right place, I think people always respond to it, you know, in a positive right. way. Um, but, but would you, you know, like say, say you wrote a poem about somebody who was there who then, you know, went, was transferred to a different prison. You couldn't get in touch with them or they like were released and you couldn't find them, which happens a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Would you be hesitant about publishing that poem without permission? Or would you think, you know, that, that would you trust your own self to, to, understand that they would be happy with it? Uh, well, you know, so much of writing poetry is it's not factual, mm -hmm. you know, so um, it's uh, I would never publish something about somebody that was personally revealing in a way that I felt compromised them without their permission. Um, but if one just use sort of the ins the ins the incident as an inspiration and took it in a completely different direction um, so that there's very little uh, identification left with, you know, that particular individual. And you're not I mean, um, I know where you're going with this because you're get, trying to get to cultural <laughs> appropriation, yeah, exactly. which is um, something we all struggle with as writers. Obviously, we don't want to appropriate other people's stories. And, you know, um, my husband is Mexican, so um, I often will write as the wife of somebody who married into another culture. And um, but yeah, no, I think it's um, I think it's a sticky issue. I think one has to 
you know, um, I took a course with, um, well, actually it was a craft talk with Vivi Francis, who's one of my favorite poets. I know you've published her a yeah, lot, but um, she did a, a craft talk on um, writing the other. And she basically said, well, of course you're going to write the other, because if we never, if we didn't write the other, we'd all just be writing about ourselves. And, you know, what's the good in that? You know, mm -hmm. sometimes you do need to write the other, but, but do it in a way that is, you know, informed and respectful and, and that is filtered through your own experience. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not so much writing the other as it is writing about yourself in a world where, you know, people are different and unique from each other. And, you know, I really think it's important that we cross those bridges and that we, you know, unify and identify and, um, you know, not misrepresent ourselves as different than we are, but at the same time, be able to celebrate each other's differences in a way that is connective and um, celebrational. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so I know, I think you're getting to um, cultural appropriation. Am I right? Is that the yeah, poem yeah, why don't you go ahead you're wanting that, me to that read? <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, this is a poem. It's called Cultural Appropriation. I remember sh I showed this to my daughter at one point and she's like, you can't publish that poem. And um, I thought, why not? Why can't I? It's a love poem. And it is about appropriation. Um, but it is, I don't write a lot of love poems because that's just, you know, I tend not to. But um, so this is, and it's so funny because I shared this with my mother-in-law and uh, she loved it. So this is called Cultural Appropriation. A mi esposo. I appropriate your tongue, your lips, your teeth, the smooth inner skin of your cheek. I appropriate your rolled R's and soft V's, the way you say wolf without the letter L, the plural of which is wolves. I claim the patch of hair in the small of your back your brown skin, your mother's mole. I appropriate your mother. Rename her La Loca. I appropriate your appropriators, the conquistadors who came with their archangels and saints, Our Lady of Guadalupe with a chisel of moon at her feet. I descend the ladder of your lineage, past missionaries and rancheros to inhabit your ancestors' ancestors the nuadal gods with feathered names I've learned to pronounce. Kotliku, the mother of mortals. Huitzilopochtli, the hummingbird patron of war. Tiolak, he who makes things sprout. I appropriate sugar skulls and mezcal, Dia de los Muertos, your pyramids and painters, your Kalo and Orozco, your poets, Octavio and Carlos. I take your lowriders and La Raza, the happy, sad ting of mariachi singing. I appropriate each sweet bite of pan dulce and tres leches and eat your street tacos smothered with guac and tapatilla. I'll take La Plaza with its bandstand and white ibis, the man selling balloons and churros and words, nights filled with appropriated besitos, isandurisas, abrazos, and the rest of the Mexican lexicon, all mine. 
I'll take your lime and salt, your fire and fault lines, and our sun. See where I have appropriated your blood, your eyes, your love of basketball, the sport you say your people created, a game played by the victors with the decapitated heads of their victims. That was cultural appropriation uh, from the forthcoming or, or the manuscript that, that should be forthcoming, because I've read the whole thing, and it is an amazing book of poems. I cannot wait until a press picks it up. Um, so I, I want to talk, I know, this is the thing, I, I know you don't like talking about yourself, um, but but I want to know more about, about your background and how you came into poetry. Um, you know, you mentioned not, not writing very many love poems. Um, and, and you just have such an interesting background um, through, you know, being a TV producer and, and film garden. And, um, and, and you are kind of a, a sort of a private person. And then you express yourself so well through poetry. So, so is that what drew you to it? Um, what was it that made you want to become a poet? And how long have you, have you been, you know, on this path? Um, oh, wow. <clears throat> well, I am writing a collection of essays. So 300 pages later, I might be able to, you know, <laughs> share those stories. But um, uh, I actually set out to be a writer. And that was my chosen career. But I became I was a single mom at a very young age. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> through a series of experiences where I realized I needed to keep a roof over my kids' heads and shoes on their feet, I decided rather than go get an MFA in writing, I went to law school. Mm -hmm. And because I was offered a full scholarship, that seemed to make a lot of sense. So um, I went to law school, I practiced law, and I will say it was a gift because I was able to keep my kids fed. And Mm -hmm. that's something that a lot of single moms struggle with and um, and single dads, you know, so it gave me the resources that I needed to be able to provide for my children, but it wasn't my chosen career path. And, um, you know, it was funny because in law school, I actually thought, oh, well, um, I'll study poverty law and I'll work for legal aid. And that way, at least I'll feel you know, good about being a lawyer and doing what I'm doing. But I quickly realized that, no, you can't actually support your children well as a single mom mm-hmm. working for legal aid. So I ended up, you know, totally selling out and working for the big corporate law firms and as a litigator. And I'm just not sort of constitutionally cut out to be an attack dog, uh-huh. as you probably guessed. Um, I wanted to settle all my cases, not always what the law firm wants you to do. It's like, can't we all just get along? That's kind of the Rodney King of um, of law. But um, anyway, from there, I ended up um, because practicing law was just sort of not for me. I didn't have the intestinal fortitude for it. Um, From there, I moved into, you know, working in-house. And I had taken a lot of um, documentary filmmaking classes uh, when I was an undergraduate. And at one point really did think I would go into documentary filmmaking. I have a real love for it. And uh, I ended up working um, as an attorney um, in-house at Paramount. And from there, I got a, another job working. I'm actually confusing the chronology of this, um, but forgive me. Um, I'll straighten it all out in the essays. Um, I ended up working um, at, you know, a couple of uh, entertainment companies. And from there, 
um, was given an opportunity to sort of go out on my own and launch uh, my own television production company. And it was it was before they even had coined the term reality television. And we were you know, I was a woman working in an industry that was heavily male and very, very difficult. Um, but, uh, you know, I had lots of ideas and lots of ambition at that point, I suppose. And um, I thought that through television, we could change the world. I thought it was a medium that would have so much impact on the way people treated each other and acted and engaged in the in the world that that was the field I wanted to work on because it could have maximum impact. I could tell really important stories that would make a difference. And that was always my goal. Um, whether it's as a writer or as a filmmaker, I wanted to tell stories that would change the world. And I thought, well, I'll get into TV because that's ubiquitous and mm-hmm. it'll change everything. And I, uh, you know, crashed my head against that wall for so many years trying to change the world through television. And at a certain point, I realized I'd been completely co-opted. I hadn't changed the world at all. It had changed me. The stuff that I was producing was not what I had set out to do mm-hmm. at all. And it wasn't. And then, you know, it's like this was years before Donald Trump came into power, but I could see what was happening. We were lifting people up and using them as role models in a way that was having, I think, a significant negative impact on our world. Mm -hmm. And we see it now. I see the, you know, the consequences of that. And that's not to say that there aren't really good shows and uplifting shows on television, but the majority of the shows that you know, it's a race to the bottom. The majority of shows that are popular and that are getting produced are very often not the kinds of not representing the kind of world that we want to live in. And so I felt like I couldn't participate in that anymore. And I my heart wasn't in it. And, you know, I just felt like my soul had been sucked out of me. So I moved on into um, trying to redeem myself. And what better way to redeem yourself than to write poetry? Because, you know, you can't, you know, you may not, the poems may not be factual, but they're true. You know, you have to be honest in a poem um, yeah. or a good poem anyway. So, and, and so, so that's what, uh, that's kind of the short story of it. That was a great summary. And I've always wondered how it all connected. So I'm glad I, you just personally, I get to hear that. Um, and so people know the, the, the shows you're producing were the, the TLC shows, the, a baby story, right? And um, which we didn't do baby story. We did wedding story, uh-huh. um, which was sort of the first of the, um, I guess you could say daily reality soap operas. Mm-hmm. And um, then we did, I mean, we were at, at at its at a certain point, you know, we were producing for all the networks, you know, Discovery, TLC, Animal Planet, Travel Channel, mm-hmm. Spike, you know, the male yeah. network. Um, and it was hard, too, because um, we were women, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, uh, you know, Michelle and we were women. And that that back then, you know, they used to when we would show up for pitch meetings, they would say, oh, the girls are here. Oh, really? You know? Wow. You know, but, things have changed yeah. a bit. This mm-hmm. was before the whole Me Too movement. But, you know, it was hard. Yeah. It was hard. And there's well, no you can see, though, it, in the we- uh, wedding story, which we used to watch those shows, the, the good intentions of it, you know, I mean, they were mm-hmm. so positive and uplifting and real, too, which was mm-hmm. the appeal of them. And then it does become a race to the bottom where the, you know, the 
like the like the talk shows where you know they realize slowly that the more drama they have and eventually start having confederate actors and in loosely scripted things and setting up scenarios and and it's not reality anymore in any kind of positive way um yeah and and it's just it's just sad to see that it go that way but then everything goes that way you know i mean journalism is that way everything is that way it's too bad yeah well and it's sad because you know to me it's um you know obviously reality shows are constructed you know Mm -hmm. so they're in many ways they're less real than fiction because at least fiction owns what it is it's fictitious you know whereas reality is holding itself up as factual when in fact it isn't because it's scripted um, you know, they're in the edit bay, you know, picking and choosing the syllables they're going to put together in their little Frankenbites and have people say things that maybe they said or maybe they didn't say. And or they're being coached by a producer to say certain things. And, you know, nobody nobody actually is that way. And yet it's being held up as the way people are. And I I think that it has created in our culture um, an acceptance of alternative facts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that is dangerous as For we sure. know. And then, then all of social media does that too. Cause everybody mm-hmm. posts that, that their imagined life as they wish to pro, you know, project it. <laughs> so exactly. So yeah, no, so that, it's that, just yeah. not, it's not creating the world I want to live in mm-hmm. anymore. So yeah. um, well, well, poetry does. So I'm glad we're doing things like like, you know, the Poetry in the Prisons project. Um, I want to keep us on task. I want to read more poems. So okay. um, uh, what do you, what do you want to read next? Um, uh, do you, did, did, did I send you that picture? Are you able oh, to yeah. share let that? Me, uh, yeah, let me pull that, uh, that up. Yeah. I have a, um, I'll share a couple of these. And then I want to actually maybe share one that is new, a new, a new one. Okay. And then the poem, what was the poem called? Called first grade picture. Okay, let me try to find that. So, I, as a child, I was um, kind of awkward, socially awkward, um, as well. I still am. So, you might have guessed that about me as a child. Um, but uh, I came across this picture of myself when I was in first grade, and it brought back such memories because I hated to wear dresses. And <laughs> so, for my first grade picture, my mother made me wear a dress and I was miserable. And I also, it was a period of, of time in my life where I, I kind of didn't know how to smile. I didn't know how to fake a smile uh-huh. as more accurate. And um, so when people would say to me, smile, I would do this thing with my face that I thought was a smile, but it really is a, it looked like a, like a grimace of, <laughs> um, it looked dangerous actually. Um, And I still actually sometimes do that. If I have to smile, like I need to fake a smile. I don't really, I don't know how to fake a smile Um, anyway. And I'd also had recently cut my hair myself. um, (laughs) See that in this photograph. Uh, That's funny. That's a great description for people who are just listening. um, But for people, uh, people watching saw it too. First grade picture. I was a hand grenade of a girl vacuum packed into a dress that bound my body like a bandage, staunching a wound. My arms were cinched in tourniquets of tulle. My throat choked in a rage of lace. I'd hacked my hair into chaos, wore it ragged and short, kept my fists clenched in the fuselage of my lap. My eyes, two foxholes, no light escaped. My lips stretched across my face, 
like a tripwire. The man with the camera said, you can do better. Give me a smile. I set my mouth into the look I've kept all these years. That's still me in the photo, waiting to pull the pin. And there's that photo again. Yeah, that was a first grade picture. And uh, another thing I wanted to talk about was um, just your writing process and, and um, you know, how much revision goes into it. Like you're, you're a perfectionist when it comes to, to writing. You've got like a novel that I've heard is great and you won't let anybody read. Um, and, um, and so this book of essays, I'm expecting, you know, about 50 years. Um, so, so how, sooner than that. <laughs> so how is, uh, what is your writing process like though? Like how do you encounter a poem and, and how much time do you spend writing and, um, and, and how, how much discovery is in the revision process for you too? That's what I'm wondering as you're revising so much, is it small little details you're changing or is it like whole things changing? Oh, I would say both. Um, you know, sometimes I, uh, I, I always am so amazed by people who can just write a poem and then that's the poem. I write a poem and it's a hot mess of material that I then work with like a sculptor. You know, I chisel at it. I sometimes or like clay more because I add stuff to it. I open it up. Um, I shake it out. I take it for a walk. I hang out at the bar with it. You know, it's a whole process for me. And um, I try to get it to this place where I just feel like this little click and like, and then I'm like, ah, I'm done. I think it's done. Um, and I never can predict how long that's going to take. And sometimes after that little click, um, I'll read it again, maybe, a, you know, two, three weeks, a month later, and I'll be like, oh, that's not done yet. And I'll open it back up and work on it some more. In fact, um, a number of the poems that I've read today that, that have already been published, I've, I'm still tinkering with them in the manuscript. So, you know, that's that's my process. It's it's um, just I but I read everything out loud to myself because I really do uh, pay attention to sound. And um, excuse me one second. I'm sorry. Thanks. My, um, I think I told you I'm at Bottle Rock. Mm -hmm. And uh, so my husband is uh, trying to sneak out of the room without making too much noise. Um, <laughs> yeah, no problem. But but yeah, I'm always in um, just awe of people who can revise because I'm the opposite. Like I find myself like I, it's like a like you can't step in the same river at the same time. Like I try to reenter the poem and the next day even and I'm just like it's gone. Like I'm a different person or the space is different and I could write a different poem. Um, but I don't know. I can't, I can't re-enter. Is there any way that you are able to re-enter? Like, like how is there, I don't know. How do you, how do you re-enter the, the like mental space of the same poem? Or is that just not well, something guess, that comes up for you? I guess, you know, it's like, there's the, um, what do they call it? The, the trigger for the poem, mm -hmm. sort of the incipient trigger. And, um, I guess I just try to go back to that. Like, what was it I was trying to get at? Mm -hmm. What was it I was trying to say? Is it clear? Can I say it better? Can I say it different? Um, and so it's, uh, I guess I'm, I'm not loyal so much to that as I am to trying to get into, um, well, I guess I, it's, you know, sometimes poems for me, just, um, they have, uh, they have sort of an evolution and, mm -hmm. you know, they need to evolve. They start very primitive and they need to figure out what they're going to do 
for a living when they grow up. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's a journey. Uh So I, I kind of see myself as the Sherpa taking my poems on their little journey to let them become what they are supposed to be. Should I read some more? A yeah, couple let's more? read some more. Um, what do you want to okay. do? Do you want to do Tilt-A-Whirl? Sure, I'll do Tilt-A-Whirl. That, that, that's the one that was in Best American Poetry, right? It was. Um, and I remember I'm reading so it. So every once in a while, I read a poem, um, you know, and I'm jealous that we didn't get to publish it. So that was my experience after reading this one, which I think I saw for the first time in, in the BAP. Um, well, I'm very grateful to Tracy K. Smith for picking it. And I, I think I told you when I got the email, the the kind of cryptic email that said, please contact us about some potentially good news. I thought it was a joke. I thought a friend was playing a joke on me. So I emailed back very cattily. Oh, what did I win a pony? (laughs) No, it was much better than a pony. Yeah, people always, um, you know, I call them for our prizes. And people always, Mm -hmm. a lot of times call me back. And they're like, was that really? I just want to see if that was true. Because I thought thought someone might have been messing with me. But uh, Yeah. yeah. Tilt-a-whirl. It was a hot day in Paola, Kansas. The rides were banging around empty as we moved through the carnival music and catcalls. At the tilt-a-whirl, we were the only ones. My big sister chose our carriage carefully, walking a full circle until she stopped. The ride operator didn't take his eyes off her. Long, dark hair and amber eyes ringed like the golden interior of a newly felled pine. She didn't seem to notice him lingering as he checked the lap bar, and my sister asked in her sweetest, most innocent, or maybe not so innocent voice, can we have a long ride, please, mister? When he sat back down at the joystick, he made a show of lighting his smoke and the cage of his face settled into a smile I would one day learn to recognize. Here was a man who knew his life would never get better. And those dizzying red teacups began to spin my sister and me into woozy amusement. We forgot the man, the heat, our thighs sticking to the vinyl seats, our bodies glued together in a centrifugal blur of happiness beneath a red metal canopy. As we picked up speed and started to laugh, our heads thrown back, mouths open, the fabric of my sister's shirt clinging to the swinging globes of her breasts as we went faster and faster, though by then we had begun to scream, stop, please stop until our voices grew hoarse beneath the clattering pivots and dips, the air filling with diesel and cigarettes, and the man at the control stick waiting for us to spin toward him again. And each time he cocked his hand as if sighting prey down the barrel of a gun. Yeah, intense poem. That was uh, Tilt-A-Whirl from um, the, what is the manuscript called that that you have right now? Uh, well, the name keeps changing, uh-huh. Tim. Well, it was called. It was called. Um, if I lived here, I'd be home now. Mm-hmm. Which I think you said you weren't crazy about that title. I, think so I wanted now, you to shorten it, didn't I say? Some I can't remember what I said. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, it's. I'm always changing the name of it. Um, it's currently called Inconsolable Objects, hmm. which is taken from one of the poems, which is called an incomplete catalog of inconsolable objects which is a list poem um how about i do um 
the poem that you published in Rattle. How are we doing? Sure, yeah, that that was a great one. And um, here we go. Let's see. I just have to find it. There we go. Okay. How are we doing? The man working window 11 at the DMV wears his name around his neck like a medal won in a war he never signed up for. Even from here, three people back, I can see Frank is having a bad day. He keeps tapping the same key, hoping the computer will do something different. Poor Frank, tapping harder and harder, pausing sometimes to stare owl-eyed at a young woman waving her paperwork as if she's trying to reignite a dying fire. Her pretty face has grown ugly in her anger. She smacks the counter, demanding to know the problem. Roused from her desk, a grenade-shaped woman drifts over to hover above Frank and watch him struggle. She gives directions in a tight, managerial voice while Frank continues to tap until finally she commandeers his keyboard, fixes the issue, and walks off, leaving the stamping and stapling to Frank, who hustles with a deference that hurts to watch. Meanwhile, the man waiting in front of me has huffed out of the building. But Frank, I want to lean over the counter into your small, personal space and straighten your reading glasses that have gone askew. Their broken frames hang cockeyed off the thin bridge of your nose like pipe cleaners in a preschool project. I want to batten down that piece of your hair sticking up, except I'm still in a line that isn't moving. And I fear the office will close before I've had a chance to tell you how sorry I am that life has brought you here to this place where all these people unwind like a frayed rope into the unhappy well of your work days. But finally, it's my turn, Frank, to look you in the eyes and ask you to process my papers. How hard is it, really, to notice the way you bunch one corner of your mouth into a half smile or blink at the mention of your name, a name I have carried in my heart for all of these 20 minutes. So when you hand me back my temporary license, along with a form that asks, how are we doing? I want to believe there is someone watching over us to whom I can respond, please, we're not doing well here. We have so little time for kindness. We are lonely and hurting. The doors to the building have been locked. The office is empty, and night has just begun. And that was How Are We Doing, which was from uh, Rattle Number 72, um, last winter's issue, or maybe 76. Ah, I lose track. Um, whatever issue it was last winter. Um, and nominated for a Pushcart Prize by one of their, their board of directors, which should be announced soon, so keep your fingers crossed for that. I'm rooting for it. Um, a wonderful poem. One of the things about your work is that it's always rich with metaphor. Um, you just do such a great job of pulling these these really golden like metaphors out. And I think you won the uh, Neil Postman Award for metaphor um, years ago, right? No? No. Oh, no, I not. didn't. <laughs> That's right. But yeah. I think that comes with a paycheck, so I would have liked it. You would have liked it. Yeah, yeah. We, um, 
I mean, they're always in the running because you always have these wonderful uh, metaphors throughout your work. How do you come up with uh, how do you come up with them? Like, is, is that something that comes up in the revision process? Is that something you consciously do that you try to like in, inject into poems, or do they like appear spontaneously? That creativity to to create new meaning in, in a in language that way is just something that once we started the Neil Postman Award for Metaphor that we do it became clear how rare that actually is in poems. Like looking through, there's always only a handful of poems in each issue that have really great metaphors. Um, a lot of poems are, are more narrative based and they have different things going for them. But the metaphor, which is like the fundamental unit of poetry in a way, um, is, is something that's hard to do so well. So how do you approach injecting metaphors? Well, um, I love Ted Kuzer, who I think is a metaphor genius. Um, and um, I know he's not, always so popular, but I, you know, I'm from the Midwest and he kind of writes about the world the way I see it. And I love his metaphors and I've studied his metaphors. And I, for me, I approach metaphors when I get stuck and I'm trying to describe something. Um, I think to myself, what is this, what is this like? What does this remind me of? And sometimes I have to carry it around with me and I, or I'll make a list or I'll walk or I'll, you know, I just, I mean, I think poets move through the world differently than a lot of other people because we're always noticing mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're paying attention. Um, Cause you can't write unless you notice you have to notice first and gather material. And um, so I'm always just thinking, what is this? How would I describe this? What is this like? And um, sometimes I nail it. And sometimes I really don't. And, um, you know, sometimes I end up just taking the metaphor out because it's not working or it's overpowering or it's, you know, it's drawing too much attention to itself. Mm -hmm. And um do, yeah, do you but, save them then for another poem? Like I know um, we were talking to Janet Fitch, the novelist, and she has like mm -hmm. a file cabinet where she's like, you know, I wrote this metaphor for a picket fence in 1983 and I'll pull it out when I need it. You know, <laughs> do, do you have any kind of um, saving? I mean, I'm sure not that detailed, but do you save? Well, them? when I studied with Marvin Bell, who I sadly we lost this year, um, the dear, dear, dear man and wonderful poet and wonderful teacher, very generous. But um, he said, start, st you should be keeping a scroll in your, you know, in your computer, in your file, wherever you write, whether it's by hand or on, on um, you know, on the keyboard, but um, keep, start a scroll. And first thing, when you start to write every morning, just pop open that scroll and just start writing. And um, I actually took his advice and I did that. And I'm now, I think I'm on my third scroll and there are many hundreds of pages long. Mm -hmm. And almost all of the poems that I write come out of that scroll. Oh, okay. And, you know, sometimes the things don't make it into a poem, but if I, you know, I'll go read back through it and I'll find a line and I'll be like, oh, I really like that. And I might pull it out, put it back at the top of the scroll and, you know, work with it. So, you know, Jericho Brown does that wonderful thing where he saves all of his lines. He cuts them up, puts them in baggies mm -hmm. and then writes duplexes. He created the duplex. Oh, is that what that's from? I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, that's something to look about, to, to think about. Um, but well, yeah. we're, we, uh, if you don't mind sticking, I don't know if you have to go anywhere. Do you want to do one I'm, more question and one more poem? Oh, sure. So, so everybody um, in the commentary on the chat windows is, is talking about the whole time has been talking about how great your endings are. Um, and you yourself mentioned that a, a poem at some point clicks. Were mm -hmm. you referring to the ending as the click when you mentioned that? Or, and how do you, what's a good ending to you? How do you know how to end a poem? Oh man, endings. Um, you know, there's a, I actually, and I think a lot of poets do this, but 
you know, I kind of work through, there's a little bit of a checklist that I haven't like carry around in my mind. And one of them is, you know, to look at the ending, you know, what is it called? Beware the false rise. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to make sure that my ending isn't all tied up in a bow and too perfect. And, you know, um, Marvin, to quote Marvin again, used to always say the poem ends, the poetry continues. Um, and so that's kind of what I look for is I want it. I want the ending to, to leave it so that the poetry is going to continue after the poem ends. I don't, you know, I don't want the poem to shut down at the ending. I want it to carry on. And um, uh, I think there's also, is it Stephen Dobbins who wrote um, Inevitable and Surprising? The ending should be inevitable mm, and surprising. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I always aspire to that. That doesn't always mean that I get there, but, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, great description again. Um, let, let's close out with one last poem. You know, I'm I'm thinking I'd like to read a poem that hasn't been published yet. Sure. Um, yeah. If that's okay, uh, it's um, it's a new poem. I I may have shared this with you, um, but I feel like, you know, it's it's crazy because we were all so focused on what was going on in Ukraine, and then of course, the mass shootings that we've had over the last couple of weeks. It's 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 crazy because the headlines of liter- of about Ukraine have literally been pushed down. And now all the headlines are about, you know, babies being shot and killed. Um, but babies are still being shot and killed in Ukraine. So I want to, I want to share this poem for the people of Ukraine. And I'm also working on, as I think, you know, this, um, project of poems where, uh, it's one of the ways I sort of get out of myself. Um, I take news headlines, and I write in response to them, which you're familiar with because mm-hmm. you do poets respond. But, um, you know, it, I just use it as a as sort of an inspiration, as the inspiring. And this this poem um, does that. It can, it was inspired by a quote um, that came out of The New York Times. I mean, sorry, The L.A. Times. <clears throat> it's called The Road. I'm going to take a sip of water. I'm not going to make it through this. Poem. Yeah, no problem. You've got me talking more than anybody ever has. Well, that's great. That was my goal. I I wanted to hear all this stuff. The Road to the People of Ukraine after Brigitte Pegin Kelly. And this is the quote from the newspaper. Farther up the road lay a heart without a body. It was unclear from which soldier it had come the Los Angeles Times. Listen, there was a dead man lying face down in the road. For days, his body lay in the snow and the soldiers who saw it felt a wintry stillness move through them. They paused to regard the afternoon shadows and then kept on with their marching. The men stepped carefully around a torso, its arms stretched out like a swan landing on water, and what used to be legs twisted like a broken ladder. They were following orders. Farther up the road lay a heart without a body. When the men marched by the heart, they thought they could hear the sound of it no longer beating, a deep silence that rose through the soles of their boots and that seemed to grow out of the ground they walked on. The men clutched their guns to their chests. 
They didn't know whose heart it was, that heart in the road, but it glittered in the snow like a garnet. The men had thought to fight a war and be done with it. But listen, here is the point. A heart lay in the road and it will follow the soldiers home so they will never be able to stop hearing the sound of it not beating. They will carry that sound back to their homeland, back to their children and wives. They will hear it while singing their babies to sleep. It will follow them into their beds where they'll wake in the night listening to what isn't there. They will carry it back to the man who makes men keep marching and none of them will ever go back to being who they were. The road will never go back to being a road or the field a field. The man who gave the orders will never go back to being a man. He will surrender to the emptiness in his own heart as it grows cold and quiet because a war is something you can never be done with. And every heart that stops leaves a silence that the earth gathers up into a chorus that is the same sound the soldiers heard on that frozen, blood-soaked road. The same hush that is heard in pastures and grasslands, in forests and cities, and on either side of the road that is no longer a road. Where wild cherry trees stand vigil, their lovely branches crusted with ice. The land will go on mourning its dead, and the trees will burst with heart-shaped fruit the color of fresh blood. Men die for that sweetness. Yeah, really powerful, important poem. I'm glad you, you finished up on that, because it is a strange contrast. Um, you know, the way that it just we just shift from one terrible thing to another, that, that lowest common denominator that the news talks about, but that's what gets clicks right now, or, or one story and not the other, and it just... <laughs> We move on and, and you know, people are, are dying awfully everywhere um, or many places. So, yeah, yeah. Powerful poem. And and just I'm so glad you could be a guest today, Nancy. I knew it was going to be a wonderful episode. Um, I've been planning on having you on for a long time. Um, so thanks for being here. And, um, and I'm just glad we could talk and share poems. Thank you, Tim. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, yeah. Really my pleasure. Um, okay, we're going to go to a uh, quick break. Uh, but first, let me say that uh, if you want to find more of Nancy Miller Gomez's work, you can find it at uh, her website, which is, of course, Nancy Miller Gomez, just like it sounds, nancymillergomez.com. Um, also, you can find and support the Santa Cruz Poetry Project and start your own um, you know, poetry in the prisons program. I'm sure there's a prison near you. There are definitely people who are suffering from a terrible, unproductive level of loneliness, basically. And so getting anything out just really helps. Um, so if you can, you know, start a program. But go to nancymillergomez.com for more, um, more of her work and um, all the wonderful things she is doing. Um, now we're going to take a quick break, like I mentioned. Uh, this week's prompt was to um, write a poem. What was it called? A Walt Marie. So if you have a Walt Marie, you can share it on the open lines. Um, first, how you do that, though, is email your poem to openmic at rattle.com. Um, email it there so I can show it on the screen like I was showing Nancy's poems. And then um, I will put the Zoom link in the uh, chat window. Uh, right now, Zoom links are being deployed on Facebook and YouTube. I will try to pin them to the top. So um, come over on Zoom. Share your one poem. I think we might have time for two. It depends if they're short or not. Um, share a poem. Come on over and... Uh, 
and then come back to the regular stream once you do because the best place to watch is actually YouTube or Facebook where you can get to see the poem too at the same time but come over to Zoom to share a poem if you'd like and I will see you in just a moment and we're back thanks so much for your patience like I mentioned the uh, the prompt this week was to write a Walt Marie which is a poem, if you, if you want to see um, the first instance of it that I'd ever heard of, that was on last week's episode, where we talked to, um, I can't remember who it was, but someone came on and shared a Walt Marie, and it was the second part of a poem. It was just so wonderful that I wanted to try our hands at it myself. So Walt Marie is a 10-line poem. Um, every second, every even line is two syllables. Those are like the only rules. And then those two syllable short lines end up making their own poem. And so um, this was my Walt Marie. And then we'll get to the open lines. Um, Here we go. This was mine. Okay, this is my Walt Marie. Even after Columbine left us weeping wall to wall on the news, Dad said the people needed every kind of gun. 2A was the only defense against government control. And besides, business was booming. He hit the annual sales quota in May, shooting now at an even bigger target. And then the hidden little poem in there is, Dad said of gun control, hit the target. Um, I did own a gun store, if I haven't mentioned it on the show before. So that was my experience growing up. Um, you know, we had uh, lots of guns in our house. So um, let's see what you all have for us. Let's go first to uh, Mary Sloan, who's right here. Let's see. So Mary, Hello. Hang on, I have. Um, Actually, you seem to have hey, a double on one second. Hey, on one second, I have. Um, I think you might have the the original screen stream on in the background. So turn off or mute the um the YouTube feed or whatever it is while you're on audio. So then we won't have that duplicated um that duplicated sound because there is like a delay between the two. Let's see, Let's see if that works yet. Actually, let's go and say, we're going to go to, uh, we'll go back to you, Mary. Um, okay. Oh, no, you got I it. I haven't read. Yeah. Now, first of all, uh-huh. I don't have a Walt Marie, so I'll just pass to someone who does. <laughs> no, you can share whatever you want. You don't have to. Well, okay. A, yeah, you don't have to I do have a prompt poem. Point. Yeah. Yes, I have my poem that I submitted. Uh-huh. And I would really like to read it. It's short. Yeah, it yeah, that'd be... That'd be wonderful. And I should, yeah, I should have said, I always forget. There's so many things I try to remember to say, but anybody, you can re- share whatever kind of poem you want. So you can share um, news poems about current events. You can share the prompt poem for the week, or you could just share some poem that you published recently um, that you're proud of and wanted to share and reach a, a new audience. Um, if you, if you do that, email me the link. If it's online, I can share the journal and the poem and it's uh, in its native, native environment too. Um, so let's see. So let me, pull this poem up so so as i pull up the poem that you sent this week uh, mary what what was it about and uh i assume i imagine what it might have been about but what was oh, it yeah mm-hmm. like everyone else mm-hmm. i wrote about the shooting incident in texas but i expanded it to also include how i'm feeling about all the civilians and children that are being killed in the ukraine this is not our only murdered children group there's so much of it so the poem is about murdered children. Yeah. Um, let me just come. Okay, here we go. This is Here, Here Lies. And, here um, Lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then let me go to this. 
is pulling up. There we go. Here lies. Go ahead whenever you are ready. I'm amazed you could find it so quickly. <laughs> Here lies the garden of murdered children. Pony rides and bouncy houses, birthday treats and singing. Parents reading stories, uncles and aunts and cousins and grandmas. Thousands of children, always young. Here lies the graveyard of grieving parents. Shattered lives and broken hearts, nightmares and platitudes. Obituary notices wailing. Uncles and aunts, cousins and grandmas, thousands of mourners, always sad. Yeah, I remember that, that line, here lies the graveyard of grieving parents. That really stood out. A great poem. Thanks for sharing it, Marie. Thank you. There's Mary Sloan with uh, Here Lies. And now let's go to, um, let's go to Jennifer Elise Wang. Hey. Hey, Jennifer. <laughs> my yeah. partner's playing with my cat in the background, and I thought that was a little inappropriate, but he's <laughs> no in a problem. How, how are you doing today? I'm good. Yeah, still working on the Walt Marie, but just, you know, with yeah, everything. Was a tricky, it was a tr one of those tricky things, you know, to get the other poem to work inside yeah. that poem. And I realized I messed up. I, I wanted the punctuation to work for both. I have to redo it, get rid of a comma or something that I didn't even notice. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so what is it that you would like to share? Um, so I'm sharing my Poets Respond poem, which almost is kind of that Walt Marie format because I used um, Beto O'Rourke's quote from his tweet, we won't forget. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'm in Texas and this happened uh, the same day as our primary runoff. So I was just thinking a lot about, you know, what he was saying, we won't forget and like our election cycle coming up and, you know, are we going to forget if, I don't know uh, if people just end up voting the way they usually do here, which isn't great. But mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I kind of wrote about this and just all the other things that have happened in Texas as of late and the, the importance of it and, and of voting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wild, wild state down there in Texas. Yeah. So this is notes for November 8th, 2022. We won't forget. Our 19 children and two teachers of Ovalde gone to be with our 10 younger siblings from Santa Fe and our abuelos and abuelas from El Paso. We won't forget the 4.6 out of 100,000 would-be parents, some reluctant, but had all other options legislated away. We won't forget our five trans sisters who departed last year and the 18 from the year before. And after adding both up, there are more bills trying to erase them and the children who have yet to be themselves. We won't forget the 246 who tried to keep from freezing like the rest of us huddled in the dark and did not leave to see more messages about conserving AC and rolling blackouts in the name of privatization and Bitcoin mining. We won't forget the 86,765 and counting sacrifice for the economy and anti-affordable health care that's really a lingering effect of the Red Scare. We won't forget Clinton Allen, Sandra Bland, Botham John, Atatiana Jefferson, and many more filled by those who are supposed to protect, who could not protect the children and teachers at Evalde. When it's November 8th, 2022, and you have a lot to do at work, and don't want to wake up early 
or take a late lunch, and maybe you don't have the car today, and it's a hassle to take the bus or call a Lyft or Uber, please don't forget. Yeah, excellent poem. Thanks so much. Notes on November yeah. 8th. And I wanted to add kind of on the end, it is really hard to get out and vote. And that's why I also, this is kind of a note for me because I have driving anxiety and oh, really? I have like skipped voting, but I've like, as I've gotten older, realized that I, I'll do whatever it takes, you know, I'll, I'll schedule early voting and, you know, find a way to get out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, great poem coming up on November. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, yeah, thank you. Okay, let's... Uh... Let's go. I'm going to let in some more people. There are more people in the waiting room. And let's go next to... Let's go to Dick Westheimer next. Hey, Tim Green. Hey, Dick. How are you doing today? Well, it's been a hard week, hasn't it? It has, yeah. I mean, it was very... I, I had to... I mean, I, I drank a little too much after reading all the poet response submissions last night. It, um, was, uh, it was... And I didn't... You probably noticed. I didn't get done until... 5 or 6 p.m. Um, it's a tough week of news for sure. Yeah, I, I, I expected it would be a late notice notice week. And uh, um, I did submit a poem that was not about that because I had started it on Sunday. It was, mm-hmm. about, the, it was about the payphone that was pulled from the street. But um, I, um, I would like to read... Um, sort of one that was derived from the story that made me cry the most mm-hmm. uh, during the course of the week. One one little stat, uh, I spent a lot of time on the Brady website oh, looking yeah. mm-hmm. at numbers. There have been, and this is something we shouldn't forget, is that, you know, 19 kids died that day, but every other day of the week, five kids died from gun, gunfire. Mm-hmm. And there have been more kids who have died from gunfire since February 24th in the U.S. than children who have died in Ukraine. Wow. Hmm. You know, it's 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 you know it it it's a strange comparison. There are lots of statistical issues, but but the carnage that we yeah. don't read about is much greater than the carnage we do do read about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just just accidental shootings and and all sorts of things. It is, and, and more guns than people in this country by by a good margin. It's just it's an incredible yeah. <laughs> incredible place we live. Yeah, well, uh, and uh, my poem. I'd like to read my poem, Blood Covenant, mm-hmm. uh, that I sent, which I don't know how to read. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a poem yeah. that I wrote and I've read. 20 times out loud and every time I read it differently. So if I don't read my own poem properly, um, and it's sort of like was drawn from sort of the dissociative state mm-hmm. I felt, I felt, you know, from, from this whole experience. Um, so if I don't read it well, I hope you'll forgive me. <laughs> um, but I don't know how to read it. Cause I, you know, I didn't know how to, I, I didn't know how to write it. So it sort of has this sort of unstable feel Mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. I remember it from the submissions. Um, So uh, blood covenant. um, And it's for Mia Cerillo, who was one of the survivors. She was the one who was interviewed about um, smearing blood on herself and just had this beautiful sort of notion that she wanted to do this. um, So people would know how horrible this was Mm -hmm. and maybe do something about it. 
Um, and then it's sort of mixed up with this sort of uh, Christian nationalism that's part of the gun culture, which is the Daniel Defense gun that was used. They had an advertisement, which they pulled down, which had a toddler with a gun on his lap and had this. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Mm -hmm. uh, train, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it, which was part of, you know, from Proverbs. And so it's not just the guns it's the it's the it's the mix it's the mix of the guns with this uh, christian nationalism i think which is a serious issue so i will read this the best i can okay good luck <laughs> i'm going to read it down both columns but as you're looking at it you might do some reading across which it also works um so maria Cerio smeared herself in her dead classmates blood like the Hebrews smudged their doorposts red, a nod to the angel, or was it a blooding, a coming of age marking the face of a hunter and his prey, or a sacrament, the blood of sacrifice, they say. Mia, who had been anointed by the demiurges of commerce, the caress of a mil-spec 556 caliber frag round, maximum damage, to soft tissue and shattered bone and the body of their Glock-strapped God. The smeared blood of a child will not save us. Maria Cerio smeared stage makeup for the part of playing dead, dipped their right hand, uh, dipped her right hand in the guts of a lamb, a knowing sign of death, like when our neighbor boy bagged his first kill, a ritual hunting, the Eucharist, their Christ, the son who died, an offering to the gods of guns, of steel, of chrome molly, cold forged, made to penetrate, disperse, yielding maximum fragmentation, the ultimate god of power, the smeared blood of a child will not save us. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Dick. A very powerful and creative poem, too, um, Blood Covenant. Um, and I, di I did have a demi-sonnet on the same subject, if there's time for that. It's a little... Uh, yeah, wh where did you email that? Yeah, no, that one was also submitted. Okay, let me uh, let me pull it I up. Was three, I was three of your 500 this week. <laughs> Sorry okay. about that. No, no problem at all. Let me, uh, let me just pull it up. Yeah. Um, this was I... Every Day in America? Yeah. Okay. Every day in America prompts its own kind of poem. Every day, the muse proposes new material for poems. Friday, the first strawberries of the season were ripe as lips fit for a perfect kiss. Saturday, storms charged the cat with static, his hair on end, his mules prickly as his crawling skin. Sunday, the sun rose right over the old oak like Stonehenge, it foretold a turning. Monday, so cold for May, I wore my wool cap. Tuesday, many children shot and killed. In America, every day is a Tuesday. Yeah, another one of those great simple lines, in America, every day is a Tuesday. Yeah, thanks for sharing both of those, Dick. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Now let's go to um, a first-time guest, uh, uh, Cora L., Hey, Hi. Cora. Yeah, how you doing? My last name is, well, I go by Cora McCann Lederbach. Uh -huh. Okay, let me, uh, did you email the poem to me? 
Yes. Let me. And I also submitted it. This is my um, current events poem. Okay, let me try to find it. So I'm not seeing it. Hmm. Let me go. Let me look over here. Um, so so I assume, was this about the same topic? I found it here. Naked, the nakedness of a nation, the Cento? Yes. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah. And, and where are you calling from, too, since you're a first time? Uh, oh, um, I'm in the, I'm outside. I'm in the countryside outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Ah, okay. So not, not yeah, close to Dick, I guess. Oh. Um, so uh, the nakedness of a nation. This is a Cento um, derived from... Um, do you want to, do you want to, I don't know, how do you, how do you want to do with Cento? Do you want to explain some of the people who were, yeah, who inspired sure. the poem first? Yeah. Um, a Cento was, uh, like a patchwork quilt made up of lines from poems, mm -hmm. other poems. And I kept thinking about, as I was walking around processing the news for a few days, I, I just kept thinking about Ilya Kaminsky's Deaf Republic, which is so moving to me, such a wonderful work of art, really. And so I pulled these lines together from Deaf Republic um, to reflect my feeling mm -hmm. um, about what's going on. The nakedness of a nation. I watched the boy take iron and fire in his mouth. It only takes a few minutes. Observe this moment, how it convulses the earth, the body of the boy into which the hand of God lunges. I stare wordless and do not know why I am alive. The children watch us, watch others. I am drowning in this country. Our people shut their windows, surrender. We sit on our hands. Silence like the bullet that's missed us spins. On earth we can do what we want. At the trial of God, we will ask, why did you allow this? The answer will be an echo. Years later, some will say, none of this happened. Yeah, great Sento. And that, uh, as it's created at the bottom, was uh, was uh, from Deaf Republic by Ilya Kaminsky, um, Alfonso and Snow, that map of bone. A great book. Um, one of the, uh, Ilya is just one of the best poets ever, you know, alive. And um and so great Santo from his work. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Yep. Take care. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, thanks for joining us. So let's go next to, um, let's go to Vicky Miko. Vicky hasn't been here in a while. Hey, Vicky, how you doing? Where'd you go? Vicky? Uh-oh. Okay, I think Vicky might have pushed the wrong button. Let's go to uh, let's go to Sharon Ferrante. Hopefully, Vicky will come back. I think she might close the window. Hey, Sharon, how you doing? Hi, Tim. Okay. Oh, Nancy was great. Thank you for that interview. That that was wonderful. Yeah, she's one of those yeah. those those poets that that everybody should know. I think so. It's my uh, it's my duty to make sure everybody does. <laughs> well, thank you. She she yeah, she was powerful, wonderful. Thank you. Um, I did a prompt poem. Mm -hmm. It was hard. Yeah, it's tricky, I, I, and I, I kept I, I kept wishing it was which was uh, six you know six short ones or something or. or okay. <laughs> I had like three stories going, and um, yes, I've been very 
uh, upset about what happened in Texas. I worked at a middle school for 20 years. Mm, yeah. And I did the lockdowns with the kids and I tried to write something that eh, eh, the, the stories I came up with were no good. So guess what I did? What Sharon does, she picks the silly one. Because it just, I have to. Mm-hmm, so I got sure. a silly one. We all could use a break, definitely. I don't know if I did it correctly, but it's just a silly little poem and I got, here, here we go. Okay, I'm glad to have it. Let's, let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> On Halloween, I become a Klingon. My nose was all wrong, wayward. My uniform went under my boots. I trip. My batleth was dull, leaving me wanting. My hair was sparse, barely enough to find. I'll try again next year for favor, honor. And then the palm inside, wayward, I trip, wanting to find honor. Oh, that was excellent. I love that. They're both both funny. And then the this the inner poem was kind of serious. Um, that was a great combination. Yeah. Great to turn yeah, it. it. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I gotta go with the Klingon. Okay. <laughs> that was great. Well, we could all definitely use a little smile. So thanks for sharing that, uh, Sharon. Thank you, Tim. Thank you very much. Uh, let's go next to another first-time caller, and it's uh, Tanisha Carr. Or Tanish Carr, sorry. Hi, Tanish. Um, I have a poem about um, Buffalo, the shooting mm-hmm. in Buffalo, um, and it's called um, Curling Up with Chappelle. Okay, let me uh, let me pull this up. Um, it was, uh, which one was it? If what, what if we love? No. Um, Oh, uh, I see oversee, overseeing Iris and rumbling ramblings underfoot. It's called, Oh, I just got, okay. The email was just slow to deliver. So I have it here. Okay. Okay. So this one is, uh, curling up with Chappelle, right? Yes. Okay. You got the right one. Good. Curling up with Chappelle. Do I need to read? Do I need to see the videos, the news of Buffalo, the massacre to remind myself of what evil looks like? Even though I know it exists. Protect myself from what those vulnerable elders experienced before they became ancestors of culmination of self-contained colonization they endured their whole lives? Do I need to see lifeless black bodies again and again? Or can I just watch Chappelle's specials and save my nervous system the shock? Is that privilege? Yes, I think so. Is it better to imagine myself in their terror and then answer the call with love, not rage. Can I even do that? Do I even know the terror? I have felt racism in white spaces attach itself like a leech, trying to goad me into hating myself enough to kneel at false power, deny my own and simultaneously prove I am a good person. 
I know hate when you believe people want you dead from my sister, father, mother. I have a lot to draw from to put myself close to that fear. But no, I don't know what it feels like to have a venomous word created for me because of my skin color as an excuse to distract into white hot violence for absolutely nothing that I did or am. After this, the descent to hell is easy. I have seen the upper lip of a quiet, peaceful man curled back in a tigerish snarl of rage because black folk rode by in a motor car. W.E.B. Du Bois. No, I don't know what that's like, but I feel it infect our air like a virus. It burns. Please make it stop. Yeah, excellent poem, Denise. Great reading of it, too. Curling up with Chappelle. Thanks so much for sharing that and for joining us today. Thank you. It was Tanish Carr with Curling Up with Chappelle. And now let's go back to Vicky Miko. Hopefully it'll, we get to it this time. Hey, Vicky, can you? Let's see. Hey, Vicky, can you hear me? Hi, yes. Excellent. Yeah, great to see you. It's been a it, while. Yes, it has. Um, and excited to be back. I'm just uh, crying over a week of emotional days and oh, for uh, sure. Lots of emotional poems, beautiful, beautiful poems. And I think poetry helps. Yeah. I, I really, really do. Um, um, I, wa- I, I made two Walt Marie's, uh, Marie Walt, no, Walt Marie. Walt Marie, yeah. yeah. Walt Marie poems. Um, they aren't about the sadness or the goosebumps or the things going on. Um, but I thought um, my second one, I'll read my second one because it's kind of, it's kind of a happier version talking about kids. Well, you should read them both. They're not too long. Uh, well, I'll read my the second one first. Okay. Okay. It's called A First Grader's Heady Milestones. The off-road biker with his Mando helmet on, spring break. The stealthy mask hides his funny feelings underneath. First love. Like dying, yet beginning, kind of like the bean seed inside the dark backpack sprouting. How can Lily be better than his collection of shock troopers? Who knows? And do you want to read the, the short poem in the middle? And, uh, the, um, spring break, first love, kind of sprouting. Who knows? Yeah, that's great. I really love this form. It's, it's really fun to do. And, um, and I'd never seen it before. And I was hoping, and maybe um, still she'll come around, but uh, the, the Marie in Walt Marie is actually Marie Ellen Good, who uh, is, is here sometimes. So I oh, had wow. no idea. I, I didn't realize until I saw just this morning a comment. I was looking for whoever shared the first one, and I saw her comments on our, uh, our Facebook stream. And she was like, oh, that's, that's me. <laughs> oh. So, uh, yeah, that's cool. But yeah, um, That would be great to have her on. That would. That would be oh, and I forgot to share. So this is the, uh, the photo that you included with it, too, this um, heart-shaped rock. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I took that on the trail. Yeah, beautiful. And then let's hear um, the other one, too. Thank you. Um, first, I wanted to mention that uh, the Walt Marie is, is very similar to Split Haiku. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and that might be um, one of the prompts too. Just mentioning that. Yeah, that's a good idea for sure. 
Okay, so my second one is senescence or how to not know me. I hope I won't die before they do. My thoughts, all my notes thrown into a muddy, multi, muddled multiverse. My dreams, a lifetime worth of interpretation, scrapped, gone, cryptic. Verses that scream potential, transcendence, cockamamie, doodles, all my masterpieces left behind in some nightstand drawer, wasted. And the, the um, inner poem is, my thoughts, my dreams, cryptic doodles, wasted. Yeah, excellent. Very, very good. Always a pleasure to see your work and uh, talk to you, Vicki. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, everybody. Okay, and now let's go to, oh, and I should say, if anybody's um, already read a poem and still hanging out, you can uh, shift over to the YouTube or Facebook stream where you're watching before, and then you can see the poems, too. And let me let, uh, let me let Candy in as well. And I'll go to the next, but let's go to uh, the person who uh, inspired this prompt for the week, which was Deb Tannenbaum. Hey, Deb. Hello. Um... Yeah, I just am really grateful for the interview and for all the wonderful poems on these difficult topics. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's, you know, poetry has value and this is the kind of week, you know, unfortunately where the value really comes out because, it, you know, a lot of people like, like Nancy was saying, you know, I don't know how you'd get through times like this without somewhere to put your emotions, you know, you need a kind of container for it. And um and, and to, to work through it and make sense of it. And that's what poetry provides. So it's really important. It's, it's times like these where we matter the most, I think. Yeah. And I um, haven't kind of learned how to do that yet. Um, so I have a, a, a Walt Murray mm -hmm. that's um, not on a difficult topic. So. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, we need other, we need those poems too, for sure. If it was all nothing but, but really heartbreaking poems then we uh we'd have a really sad show that nobody would want to be <laughs> so so i'm glad we can mix it up with other things as well um so let's hear this way i have two i see two here strangers oracle and mom calling right yeah i actually um read mom calling last uh, week that was the one that so I'll, I'll read the other one yeah you could read it read it again too they're short because this was i loved it that, uh, i think of them as like snacks uh -huh. <laughs> yeah they are they're fun Okay, a stranger's oracle. We've just begun. I hope you're still mine when you're an old man. You'd sure make a cute one. We cruise the hood by foot. Your hand sits in mine. A chord resonates between us and lands in an open doorway as we pass. We're oblivious until a seer croons to us, names us, divines what will always be, what we already are, true love. Old man sits in doorway, names us true love. Oh, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. These are really cool. I mean, there's something about the inner poem shifting from the, from the, the outer poem that, that really is a really fun form. Okay. And um, this other one is mom calling. A nurse, a dancer, a cancer survivor, my mom. If asked about her kids, she'd have 90 stories to tell. In one, I'm three years old at the beach, ocean roaring. My dad takes me strolling, forgets I'm along, 
returns alone. Can you hear her calling? How she kept calling and calling my name. My mom, 90 years old, forgets my name. Yeah, that's just excellent. That uh, I was looking around for different different versions of Walt Marie's. And that's the best Walt Marie I've ever seen, I think. That's just great. Mom calling. Thanks for sharing that, Deb. Okay, thank you. Okay, and now let's go to um, Nivedita. Hello. Hey, Nivy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm doing good. There you are. Yeah. So, um, so what do you have that you'd like to share? Um, my attempt at a Walt Marie. Uh-huh. <laughs> and thankfully, again, it's it's been a hard week with the news, so I was sort of wearing off that mm-hmm. sort of in positive light with like a poem about dawn sort of new beginnings and things like that so and a version of this i already um i know what it is i mean google had for india something called a project g b a and c so it's google books art and culture mm-hmm. so you it's sort of like a mini chapbook sort of contest Mm-hmm. where you send in a couple of about seven to ten poems and if they select it it gets published on google books so well, that's really a version yeah. yeah so a version of this not the walt marie version of course but the essence of this poem is from that and i've just switched it up to sort of make sense with this form i hope it makes sense with this form let me put it that way yeah very cool i, I pulled this up for everybody to see so this says uh this nivity to karthik um, poetry exhibit india if you google that i'm sure that'll come up or maybe project um, g b a and c uh yeah if you just i mean type my name and go to google books it sort of shows up at mm-hmm. least that's how it shows up for me so <laughs> yeah great well that's a very cool project i like i love hearing about different things uh, let's hear the poem okay dawn in the darkness of the night the leaves whisper of the dawn that comes as night soon ends the winding path weaves through the deep darkness to dawn and then it broke kissing the horizon bright blushing mm-hmm. and the mini one within that the night soon ends weaves through to dawn blushing oh that's great yeah these are just fun little snacks as Deborah said i love this form uh, thanks for sharing one nivy thank you tim it's great talking to you have yeah. a lovely sunday always a pleasure have a good thank night you. thank you Bye. I'm Nivedita Karthik with, uh, with Dawn. And you can find Google Nivedita. It's N-I-V-E-D-I-T-A, Karthik, K-A-R-T-H-I-K. So put that into Google to find her, uh, her Google book. And we have one person left. Let me make sure we don't have any more in the waiting room. Oh, we do. Kimberly's here, too. Let's admit Kimberly. And then we have Candy, um, a first-time uh, open micer. Hey, Candy. Let's see. you got to unmute yourself. Uh, you're on mute, Candy. So uh, there's a unmute button, very bottom left of your Zoom screen. Hmm. Well, as you try to find that, um, it's a there's a microphone button, and it sh- it probably has a line through it right now because you're on mute, Candy. So um, just click that, and it should um, unmute yourself. But now let's uh, go to Kimberly instead. And we'll, we'll try to get back to Candy in a second. Is Kimberly here? Hmm. 
Well, Kimberly, oh, here's Kimberly. Hello. Hey, Kimberly, how are you doing today? Pretty good, pretty good. Um, there you go. Yeah, hello. Yeah, good to see you. Hey. So, uh, what what do you have that you would like to share? Uh, it's a poem about the the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And um. Well, yeah, about the pandemic, I think all of the news this week about mental illness on the rise during uh-huh. the pandemic is true, and I I wanted to write about it. Okay, well, I have it here. The wrong pandemic. Go ahead whenever you are ready. Triage decisions lacked common sense. Network news misinformation did not recompense. We failed to prioritize which robot should return to battle. We did not resonate with the lies the Richter scale told us. Jacket cracks, earthquake-sized, echoed voices asking why. We ignored the sick malingering cries of the mental illness pandemic all around us. Psychosomatic fatigue and blindness, a crippling anxiety, a collective sadness. Psychological suffering stigmatized by a nation in the denial zone. The most crowded room in our single family home where we waited impatiently for the next government check to arrive. And yeah, thanks so much. So it was the wrong pandemic. Great thing uh, to put, bring up, Kimberly. It's a, uh, it's true. I mean, the the mental health issues in this country that it's not treated really like as a as a part of our healthcare system. Even um, it's just such a tragedy. So um, and it causes so many problems. I mean, this among others, that the, the shootings are a consequence of that as well. A, a perfect storm exactly. of so many bad things going on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah thanks for sharing thanks. that. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, it was a pleasure. That was Kimberly McNeil with The Wrong Pandemic. And we'll try to see if we can um, get Candy on again. We'll try to see, have Candy unmute and see if it works. It might not, though. If not, I'll try to read the poem myself if I can find it. I'm not seeing the poem either. Oh, here, maybe. Oh, Candace. I think it's Candace with a um, with a Walt Marie. But yeah, can't, um, Candace is not able to unmute. So, so I will just read and share the poem uh, myself, Candy. Uh, this is Amid Chaos. Let me put it on screen. Amid Chaos. The morning sun slants through the kitchen window where I sit, surrounded by lace-patterned shadows made on the wall, amid the calmness of morning bird calls, Bach and tea, there is chaos at the bird feeder, finches and sparrows battling for position, not waiting their turn, for theirs is a battle of survival, not a negotiation for peace. In the inner poem, I sit amid chaos, waiting for peace. Beautiful poem. I love the the way that worked in there. Thanks so much for saying that. It was Can- Candice Kubinek. I'm sorry we couldn't connect um, through video, but it was great to share this poem. Let's go. Um, let's see what else we have here. 
Clayton Clark is uh, can't be here today, but she has two uh, semi semi successful Walt Marie attempts. She says, "This is um, Clayton Clark again." Here we go. This is uh, brother and sister send off. I like the way she formatted too. If you're only listening, she uh, she put the um, the hidden poem as a separate thing, which makes it a little easier to read too. Um, pitches. This is brother and sister send off. Pitches fly even when stars kiss their backs. He winds into the purple night, almost blind. Sister cries foul, plays on. Their mother's voice bounces off the sky, iridescent. Wings rise. The hot meal won't wait forever. Overtime takes her. She lifts, words gone, paralyzed. The slow blinks goodbye. Moonlight. Then the little poem. He winds, plays on, wings rise. She lifts, moonlight. That's great. I love the She Lifts Moonlight. Very cool. And then the second one, this is Last Night, Nicholas Cage. Came in, hung around my room while I slept and hit me with a revelation. Songbirds are phoning it in. Then said, you who phones in your life night and day, day and night, wake up. Don't you understand there is no time left? I did. Like a burst tire, the meaning of life blew open and I saw. I saw. And then uh, the small poem, Last Night, Nicholas Cage hit me. Then said, wake up. I did. I saw. Excellent. I, this is a little fun little form. I really enjoyed it. I'm so glad uh, Deb Tannenbaum pointed this out last week. And Oh, Nate Jacob was there and then had to leave, I, th- I assume. Yeah. So this is a Nate Jacob's poem. He, he mentions he, he apologizes for having to leave. We just didn't get to him in time. This is Nate Jacob's poem. One more best day ever, please. There we go. Okay. One more best day ever, please. Weekday mornings, I send my daughter off. The damp stain of a parent's anxious kiss drying as she makes her way from our door to the three steps up into the yellow bus. And then she is gone as quickly as her forehead has dried and me still in the doorway, stunned again, pressing the damp damp fear from my eyes, calming the trembling lip which moments before called after her. Have the best day of your life. And her, without even casting a look back, responding as she always does, I know, Dad. Each day she returns is the best day of my life. I don't tell her about my fears. They are mine. She need not add them to the frustrations of addition and spelling and rascally boys chasing her across the playground, hoping for a kiss but settling always for a tag because teachers are watching, parents too. And the eternal safety of catch and release plays out, scuffed knees and bruised egos aside. And the schoolyard's supposed safety, where lately my daughter is much more likely to be shot dead than to fall victim to a burning building. Where lately fire drills are replaced out of need by active shooter drills. Where once they learned to escape the smoke and flames and to meet at a safe spot, now they build desk barricades and hide in closets and cupboards while teachers pray at doorways, bodies to shield our children, wanting only to lead them back into buses, to send them safely back home after a hug. Survival again, the measure of best day ever. Yeah, great, very touching poem. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, uh, Nate. Um, and then one last poem. We'll do, um, yeah, there, there are more, oh, let's do, um, um, let's do Carla Schwartz's audio. Um, she sent a recording of it as well as the poem so if I can if I can pull it up here we go this is um, 
This is Carla Schwartz's poem, Her Walt Marie. I'll just have to get this set as loud as possible. Here we go for Carla Schwartz's Walt Marie. Come Along, Contemplating Automatic Weapons, a Walt Marie poem by Carla Schwartz. I'm not sure why we're resistant to changing course, why where a rock sits for thousands of years on earth bothers your mind enough to coax a strong reaction to such affronts to the status quo, the natural disorders of the universe, how a simple mechanism can overcome the weight of things. Changing your mind affronts orders of things. This is by Carla Schwartz at CB99 Videos. There are no words for what went down in Uvalde, Texas in late May 2022. This poem is an attempt to address the seemingly polarized explanations of automatic weapons and mental illness. That was great. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, that was Carla Schwartz with Come Along, Contemplating Automatic Weapons. And you see the little note that she left me. Don't forget to unmute when done, which I did last week. Um, thanks for sharing that. Another great Walt Marie. Okay, so it's time for the uh, Saiku really quick to wrap up the show. And the Saiku for this week was based on a um, an article here. I'm always interested in these... Um, the, the origins of language, you know, somebody who deals with language all day, um, it's just fascinating to me how far back language goes, how far back the oral tradition goes. And this is a study out of Ma Ma Max Planck University. Um, here we go. This is um, chimpanzees combine calls to form numerous vocal sequences. Evidence of structured vocal sequences in wild chimpanzees communication provides insights into human language evolution. And so what these scientists did was just basically for the first time in a very long, you know, first time ever, they took a lot of time to record a whole bunch of wild chimpanzees in the Ivory Coast. And what they found after analyzing all the audio tracks is that the chimpanzees have this really sophisticated speech patterns that have regular rules, which sort of implies a syntax. There are 38, I think they said, different sounds they make. And certain sounds are usually followed by a a few different sort of possible sounds after that, which sort of implies that a whole lot of language is going on, more than we expected. And so I thought that was fascinating. Um, just thinking back at how, you know, how human-like, and here's a little chimpanzee family, how human-like we are, you know, or, or, or how chimpanzee-like we are. Um, you know, we're all connected on this, uh, this web of life. So this is the Saiku for this week. Uh, two chimpanzees call indecipherably through branching trees. Two chimpanzees call indecipherably through branching trees. That is your, uh, your Saiku for today. Um, next week's prompt is going to be this. May is National Photography Month. Write a poem inspired by a photograph. So we had to get this one in before the end of May. And um, so now we are. May is National Photography Month. Um, write a poem inspired by a photograph. Um, and, and I think I would add the twist. It'd be nice if it was your own photograph. And then we can, um, we can share that. So include, I'll add that. I can't write it down now, but I will add that. Um, write a poem inspired by your own photograph. Um, and send the photograph when you send the poem. Let's do that. So May is National Photo Photography Month. Let's do that. And um, 
now the next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Campbell McGrath. Um, Canyon McGrath, as you see, is a Pulitzer Prize finalist for Nouns and Verbs, his new and selected poems, which came out a few years ago. He has a poem in the uh, spring issue of Rattle uh, for the first time ever. First time we've published him. First time he's submitted, I think. Um, and really looking forward to getting to know him better. Nouns and Verbs is his uh, his most recent book, the new and selected. That is Camel McGrath, Sunday, June 5th, um, at the regular time for now. I have to tell you that we are going to switch. Um, this is going to be the last Sunday show. And I'm moving it back to Monday evenings. Um, I put my own face back up for a second just to tell you. So, so we did that poll um, where we, we listed the times um, that everybody wanted to do it. And what I learned from that poll is that every time is good for some people and bad for others. And it really doesn't make it much of a difference um, as far as which time is better for other people. Like it's bad for some people. It's good for other people. Everybody has a different opinion. And there's not like a mass consensus to put it anywhere. If there was, I would put it somewhere wherever that was. Um, but instead, I'm going to put it, I'm going to get my weekends back. So I'm going to uh, move it to Monday nights, um, starting in two weeks. So that will be Monday, uh, June 13th, I believe, will be the first Monday night show. Um, is that right? Yeah, June 13th. It's going to be 8 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Monday, June 13th is the next, uh, the, the first Monday night show. And that's what we'll go from now on. So we'll still have the the Poets Respond poems in the beginning. Um, and then we'll, we'll move it up there. That way I can sleep in. I'm not really a morning person. I'm neither was Nancy. We were talking about that before the show started. Uh, and so I get to, I get to be a little more awake for the shows. By the end of the show, I'm always awake, but at the beginning I have, the coffee hasn't kicked in and, uh, it'll be nice to be drinking a a glass of wine instead of a coffee. So that is going to be the new time, 5 PM on Mondays. But next week, like I said, is the the old regular time. Um, it'll be Camel McGrath on Sunday, June 5th. Noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific for Rattlecast 147. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week. In the meantime, I'll see you for uh, Critique the Week on Friday as well. That's going to be sticking to the regular time. Uh, it's uh, Noon Eastern on, on Fridays. But um, hope to see you then. Camo Grath next week. Have a good one. <laughs>